You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here with us. So can we begin? I just want to make two assumptions, if we can all agree on that. All right. Assumption number one, that we have all made at least one really bad decision. We're okay with that? Yeah. All right. Very good. Some of you have both hands up. There's no need to overly. Okay. Uh, Second thing is, is that if you knew then what you know now, you would decide differently. We're all agreed on that? Okay, very good. So I thought the best way to really explain that is to show you one of my big mistakes. So let me let me show you what that is here. And this this is some of you are too young to know what this is, but this is a laser disc. So all right, but let me let me show you. So this is the only one I kept. I had a bunch of them, but this is my Star Wars episode four laser disc. And uh, this is what a laser disc looks like. So if you want to have a horrible moving exp- movie experience, let me explain to you how this works. You sit down with your family or your loved one and you just you put the movie in. Boom, it goes in. 30 minutes into your movie, the movie will stop abruptly and a turtle will appear on its shell and it'll say, hey, you've got to flip me over. So stand up. Turn the lights on, hit the eject button, grab the laser disc, flip it over, pop it in. You're like, oh, I'm glad I got that out of the way. 30 minutes later, it will say, hey, grit out the second disc. So then you put, you get, turn the lights on, stand up. Then you're going to get out of the, you got to get up. Then you got to grab this. Then you're going to pull out disc number two. Then you're going to put that in. And if you have the misfortune of watching a long movie, the turtle will appear again and tell you to flip this guy over. Well, I decided before I was married that I was going to buy a laser disc player because I just thought this was like the greatest thing ever. And so not only did I buy a laser disc player, but I used my powers of persuasion with the friend that went with me. I talked him into buying a laser disc player too on the same day. And it has been more than 25 years, and he still has not forgiven me for that. And so, and so I went to Brands Mart, and here's the thing, and I'm sorry if you're a fan, but I am not a big fan of Brands Mart. I know you're like, buying the Brands Mart. I'm not a fan of Brands Mart. Every time I go there, I feel like I'm committing a crime because I don't, like, their, their whole process, and, and, and maybe it's changed, but when I used to go to Brands Mart, you would walk up to one of the sales guys, and they, they'd be like, you, you want to buy one of these? I'm going to write down a number on a piece of paper. You're going to take it to my friend, give her the money. She's going to give you a slip. You're going to go around the building back to the docks. They're going to hand you a box. You're going to put it in your trunk and get out of here like you never knew what happened. And it's like, that is how you, that is exactly how drug deals go down. And yet that's how you bought a CD player. And so anyway, so I, I, so my friend, right before we're, we're in line to pay for the laser disc player. And my buddy says, are you sure you want to do this? You know, I heard 
that they're going to make, they're going to put movies out on discs the size of a CD. And I said, yeah, you're going to take your flying car to go buy them? And, and he's like, yeah, you're right. That's such a stupid thing. Let's buy these laser disc players. You imagine my shock when DVDs came out six months later. I, I, was, I was in shock. And once again, my friend has never forgiven me. And, 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 but here's the thing. Most people keep their accomplishments on the wall. I, I am totally different than that. Um, like, I had no idea where my college degree was up until like three weeks ago. Uh, I, was, I, I just moved, so I cleaned out my garage, and I opened up a box. I had all these files, and I'm like, there it is. If the college police ever shows up, I have proof. And so I, and I have it. So most people, like, put, I don't put that stuff on the wall. I put things on, on the wall to remind me to not make dumb decisions. So I have, I have had that laser disc five feet from my desk for the last 20 years because every time I'm going to make a decision, I turn, and I just see the spine of that laser disc, and I'm like, Am I making a laser disc decision today? And no? All right, then let's do that. And, and I'm telling you, because there is, the, but there is a saying, and you've probably heard it, that experience is a wonderful teacher if you can afford the tuition. But there is, because there is a price to be paid for learning from experience, right? There's pain, there's regret, there's the, the whole thing. But there really is something better than learning from your own experience, and that is learning from the experience of other people. Because when you learn from the experience of others, you get the same lesson without the pain and the regret of actually doing it. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants to tell this church in Corinth in our study today. Now, we started a series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, which we've been studying now. This is actually the 12th message in 1 Corinthians, and we've been calling it a beautiful mess. And the reason why we've been calling it that is because this church was so gifted. They had so many spiritual gifts in this church, and it was beautiful, but they also had so many problems that was such a disaster where the Apostle Paul had planted this church, spent two to two and a half years there, and then left the church, turned it over to local leaders, and then got word that there was all kinds of problems. There was infighting, division, people suing each other inside the church, all kinds of things. So he writes them this letter that we've been studying, telling them that a divided world needs a united church. Telling them that the way that you're united is by having what he calls the mind of Christ. That is thinking about things the way Jesus thinks about things knowing what God wants to do and speaking in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. Now, if you haven't been with us or you're just coming back or some variation of that, we, the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians is just Paul correcting all of the problems that are happening in Corinth. And then starting in chapter 7, he says, now for the questions of which you wrote me. And so the church had written Paul a letter saying, Paul, we have a whole bunch of questions, practical, theological, about how do we live in this world based on certain things. And so he's spending the, the rest of the book answering the questions that they have. And I'm so grateful that they had asked some of these questions because we get just like these amazing principles and insights. So in chapter 7, he, he changes and he starts talking about marriage and singleness as a Christian. In chapter 8, he starts talking about how to deal with disagreements without vilifying the other person. You're both Christians. How do you deal with that? That some of us have to curb our freedom for the sake of others and that those who are easily offended have to grow up in their faith. And then in chapter 9, he continues that conversation, but at the end, he starts talking about running the race, right? Running the race of life and running in such a way that you win. 
And he's going to continue that conversation into chapter 10. But what he wants to do is not just tell us to run. He wants to show us those who ran and didn't finish. Those who ran and it didn't end well. Those who got caught up in the side trails and the rabbit trails and didn't really make it. They, they could have been successful but ended up wasting their lives. Because here's the thing that's important for us to know. Sometimes having a great boss, having good parents, having an inspiring teacher, that really helps us, obviously. But you know, sometimes the bad boss, the lousy teacher, the subpar parent are teaching us as well. They're teaching us what not to do, what not to be, and where not to go. And that's what Paul is going to show us starting in chapter 10 and verse 1. Here's what we read. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to talk about, about learning by the example of others. But the first thing that we need to note is this, if you're a note taker, and that is that shared experience does not mean shared faith. Now, Paul is going to talk to us like we're all Old Testament experts. And if you're not an Old Testament expert, that's okay. That's what I'm here for. And I'm going to fill you in on the backstory as we move through these verses. And so Paul's point is that all of the children of Israel had the same experience. They all saw the miracles. They all saw the divine deliverance from God. They were all believers in the God of Israel. However, all of those experiences were kind of interpreted differently by those who observed them, and most of them didn't believe when the time came. That's why I find it kind of hilarious. You know, people say that the Bible exaggerates. And I, it, it, most, you know, a lot of times it's actually being way more polite than it should. Like when Paul says, and with most of them, God was not well pleased. Do you know how many of those two and a half million people God was pleased with? We actually have a count. Two and a half million people came out of Egypt. He was pleased with two, with most of them. 2.5 million people. So 2.4 million, God was not well pleased. And so it was, um, anyway, two guys, um, Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Those are the two people that God was pleased with. Now, Paul outlines three moments in Israel's history, and he uses a section in the book of Exodus from Exodus 13 to 17, af right after they were, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, and how each of them relates to us, how they had these shared experiences, but they all viewed it differently. What were the shared experiences? Number one, if you're a note taker, they experienced God's presence. Paul is saying they all passed under the cloud. Now, if you're not aware when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, one of the things that you have to know is that God was guiding them from Egypt to the promised land because all these people had known is slavery. They had never left Egypt. They had never been anywhere. So they crossed the Red Sea and now they're headed to the promised land. And understand, there's no signs that say promised land, next left, right? It's just, they're just out there. And so what God does is he has a cloud over the people by day. He has a pillar of fire that's leading the people by night. When the cloud 
pillar of cloud stops, they stop. When the pillar of cloud moved, they moved. When the fire stops, they stop. When the fire is moving, they're moving. And all of it was to lead them, to keep them warm, of course, the pillar of fire. And the cloud was sheltering them from the desert sun. In Exodus chapter 13, Moses writes, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud or, uh, by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And they had that until they got to the land of promise. So now this served as God's divine presence and his divine direction, so they would know where to go in a wilderness that was dangerous and hostile. The second thing, was not just that they experienced God's presence, but they experienced God's power. When Paul says that they all passed through the sea, he's referring to Exodus 14 and how they all passed through the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea. And Paul uses that as an illustration to talk about how this was like a picture of baptism. They were going through the water and they were leaving their old life behind and they were going into the new life that God had for them. Baptism is the same way. When a Christian goes into the water, they are leaving the old life behind and then they come out in what is called newness of life. And that's what it says in Romans chapter six. You'll see it on the screen where he says this, or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were baptized with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of us going into the water just like Jesus went into the grave and then coming up out of the water like Jesus conquering death in his resurrection. And it's just this, it's a powerful picture of the old life versus the new. When I was a young pastor, we were doing a baptism. I was an associate pastor. We were doing a baptism and a guy comes up to be baptized and he says, I'm giving my old life up. And that includes smoking. And so he hands me a pack of cigarettes in the middle of the Atlantic ocean. I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And I'm like, all right, man, great decision. So I just take them and put them in my pocket. And by the way, people used to ask me all the time, like, well, will I go to hell if I smoke? And I always say, no, you'll just smell like you've been there. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, so he hands me the cigarettes. I put them in my pocket during the baptism. And, you know, we were baptizing a whole bunch of people and I totally forgot about it. So I get home and I have this duffel bag that's got a, you know, a shirt and shorts, and it's got a towel that's all wet and all that. And then my wife says, oh, I'll just give that to me. I'm doing laundry. And so she takes it, and then she comes out with the shorts, and she has the pack of cigarettes in her hand. And she's like, hey, is there something I don't know about? You're like struggling or something. And I'm like, no, I told her the whole story, and we laughed and shared a smoke. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. That is a joke just in case you went to public school or maybe you're German. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you, I, you know, I'll, this has nothing to do with the message, but it has something to do with being German. Um, so I went to, I spoke at this conference in California, and it was a pretty big event. And I was, uh, I was teaching, and then they did a Q&A session with me afterwards. And so it was all pastors from all over the place. And so there was a pastor... Uh, from Berlin who was there and he had some questions. And so he was like, oh, you know, in Berlin and this is how we do this, that and the other. And so 
I say, and he's like laughing and whatever, I'm joking around with him. And then, and I, and I say to the, to the group that's there, and I said, you think you have it tough. Um, he, he, he pastors in a country where no one has a sense of humor. And he's like, <laughs> and the guy didn't speak to me again. And so, once again, thus proving my point about Germans not having a sense of humor. So anyway, um, there we go. So I don't know why I told you that, but now we know each other a little better. So anyway, I love German people. So anyway, I don't know what you say to that. I mean, you know, they're great. They started two world wars. Let's just hope they don't start a third. All right, let's just, moving on. All right, I guess I shouldn't have said that one. All right, let's go ahead and edit that. Let's, we'll edit that for, for the YouTube. And uh, <laughs> there's some person like in Munich who's watching this online. And he's like, I, I started liking this guy. And, uh, but yeah, he's probably right. And uh, so, because I live here. And so, anyway, now I'm going to move on because I'm really going to get in trouble. So, but... The point is this, right? Paul uses this as an illustration. They all had God's presence. They all experienced God's power, the parting of the Red Sea. They were all um, baptized in the Red Sea. And the, the point that Paul's trying to make is that they were all believers. It's not that they like, oh, I don't believe in God. No, no, no. They all saw it. The third thing is they experienced God's provision. And that, that's the third thing. And what he's saying is, that's why he says in verse four, they all drank the, sa- they all drank the same spiritual drink. They all ate the same spiritual food. The f- spiritual food that he's talking about is in Exodus chapter 16, referring to the manna. That would, uh, and this was an amazing thing. And by the way, manna in Hebrew is a word that means what is it? And it was this substance that would show up on the ground miraculously every morning. And so they would collect it on the day before the Sabbath. Double would show up so they didn't have to collect it on the Sabbath. And so it was God's way of providing for the people and for them to eat uh, on, their, on the travel between Egypt and the promised land. And by the way, the manna ceased the day they got into the promised land, but they'd collect it every day. They'd cook with it every day and they'd make manna bread, manna soup, manna salad, manna cotti. They made all of it. And, uh, and it was God's daily provision for them. The spiritual drink is actually happens in the next chapter, in Exodus chapter 17, where the people are thirsty and God tells Moses, I want you to strike the rock and then water is going to flow from it. And that's what then quenched the thirst of, of the people as they were traveling. Now, then Paul is going to give us this little bit of tidbit that's really interesting. And he says, that rock followed them and that rock was Christ. Now, this is a rabbinic tradition that Paul is referencing, and the rabbis are kind of divided as to what that means. There are some that literally say that, you know, the rock was literally following them. Like, the rock, oh, that's the rock. And then they travel a few miles, like, hey, isn't that the same rock? Like, are we, you know, is this, are we in Groundhog Day? You know, um, and so what, what, so, but then there's others who say that what happened was is that they struck the rock, all this water came out, and as they were traveling, it created a stream that then throughout their travels, in the wilderness, that the stream was always with them, and it was the water that was from that rock. But either way, Paul is drawing a comparison, saying that while all the children of Israel experienced all of this, God wasn't pleased with most of them because most of them still didn't believe. In fact, Jesus' younger brother, Jude, who wrote a little book in the New Testament right before Revelation, he says this. He says that, you'll see it. It's says right now, here we go. 
There it is. There he is. It says, but I want to remind you that though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. The point is this. You can witness miracles and see signs and wonders, but that doesn't mean that it's going to produce faith in your life. Those things can encourage your faith. Seeing those things can inspire your faith, but at some point you've got to decide to trust God because if we don't, we will spend the rest of our lives wandering in the wilderness and never getting to the promised land, never getting to the place where we want to go and never seeing the victory in our lives because the victory we want to see, the place where we want to go and the promised land that we want to get to is always on the other side of trusting God. It's always on the other side and it always will be on the other side of trusting God. And then he goes on in verse six and he, he kind of doubles down on this and he says, now these things became our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And we should not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complained as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all of these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, listen, second thing I want to tell you, and that is this, that others, another's mistakes can bring to others wisdom. That is, another's mistakes can bring others wisdom. Listen, Paul is going to go now even deeper in this Old Testament lesson by showing us three roads that the children of Israel went down that were a disaster. And here's the point of him telling us all of this is that you can make a decision to go down these roads yourself. But if you will learn what happened when these guys went down that road, it was a disaster. So why don't we just heed their counsel and avoid the mistakes? One year, my wife and I, we went to Boston for Thanksgiving. My family's from Boston. So we went to Boston for uh, Thanksgiving. This is before we had kids. And one of the days that we were there, we were going to visit some friends of ours that had moved, this couple, they had moved to Boston to get their PhD. And so we said, hey, let's go visit them. So uh, I was staying with my sister, and she lives uh, probably about half an hour north of Boston. And they lived maybe... probably about an hour away, but they lived south of the city. So we were going to go south, go through downtown Boston, and then get to, the, uh, get to their place. So I decide that I'm going to take this road that's kind of off the beaten path. And my wife says, hey, do you want to uh, set up the, the, the GPS? Now, this is, you got to understand, this is before like iPhones and electricity. And if you're like Fred Flintstone, he was moving his car like that. That's basically how the cars moved back then. So anyway, we are, um, but I had packed, um, every time we took a trip, I would pack this little Garmin GPS that I had. I thought it was such a genius that I would do that because then this is back then. If you remember that you would kind of suction cup the Garmin or whatever, which one, whichever one you had, uh, to the, to your, uh, uh, your, what is it? Windshield. Thank you. Thank you. I'm learning to speak English here. I just got here from Cuba. And, uh, so you would put, sorry, sorry. Uh, so you'd put on the windshield, then you'd plug it into your lighter anyway. So that was the thing, but we had gotten to, we had, uh, she's like, Hey, do you want me to take out the, the GPS? And so, and I'm like, woman, which by the way, whenever a sentence starts like that, you know, it's going to end well, but I'm like, woman, I was born here. 
These are my streets. Don't you understand? I was born on these very streets that we're driving. So I'm making a big thing. She's like, okay. She puts the garment away. Ten minutes later, we're driving, and I see this big sign that says, Welcome to New Hampshire. And uh, she's like, Garmin? Yes, please. Let's go ahead. And and so, but this is what happens. Look, we can go down, like, it's one thing if we go down a road we're not sure and it ends poorly. It's another thing if we go down roads that other people have gone, like, this is a disaster. And sometimes we go down a road that others have gone, like, yeah, that won't happen to me. I'm different. No, you're not. Yeah, that won't happen to me. I'm smarter than them. No, you're not. And, and what, what Paul is telling us is that, listen, we can fall victim of these same things. If we allow what he says, let us not lust after the things that they lusted. Now, I understand that, once again, in, in English, um, we, lust is typically connected to sexual desire. But that is not uh, the way it works in the Greek language. In the Greek language, the, the word for lusted is the word epithumia. And the word epithumia means literally a desire that's out of control. Is the ice cream man here? Because <laughs> if the ice cream man is here, I want one of those cones that, you know the ones that have, it's like a rocket and it has the red, white, and blue. Can somebody hook me up with one of those afterward? Thank you. Thank you, German. I appreciate that. I saw your hand. God bless you. And, um, but that's what I want. If not, I want the Mickey Mouse that has the chocolate ears. I like that one too. So I guess the ice cream man left. So, okay. If it rings again, we will speak more of this. So somebody is here for the first time and they're like, this guy has some emotional problems. He's railing on Germans, people with phone issues. Like, God help the person if he's German and has a phone. And so, anyway, <laughs> I promise you I'm delightful. And so, I keep telling my wife that. And so, she's starting to believe me. So, anyway, but epithemia, which really just flows nicely, is, um, it's, It means literally over-desire, or that is a desire that's out of control. Because once again, there's nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. God created desire, God created appetites, but when sin enters the world and begins to twist them, this is what Paul is talking about, that a twisted desire, an over-desire can begin to derail our lives. So he talks about three things in particular that Paul uh, mentions that I want to talk about. He says in verse 7, that let us not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. Idolatry is making God in my image. Um, This is a quote, by the way, when he says the people uh, sat down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. It's a quote from Exodus 32, when the children of Israel started to worship the golden calf because Moses had taken too long coming down from Mount Sinai. Now, I want you to notice there's a slippery slope. When they just, uh, a lot of times people read that passage like, Nobody thinks like, or maybe you have thought that, like, what would make make them decide, like, well, we want to worship something. Let's worship this golden calf. Like, that sounds like a good thing, right? Um, that they, they didn't get that idea from nowhere. That was a god that was worshipped in Egypt. In fact, there's a picture here that's called the Apis Bull, and that is from a uh, museum in Egypt. This is one of the gods that the ancient Egyptians worshipped. And by the way, and we're going to talk about this some other time, but of 
when the 10 plagues in Egypt, they were all judgments against the Egyptian gods. When God curses the livestock, that is, an, that is a judgment on Apis, this, the Apis bull. And so um, all, of the ten, all of the judgments were the judgments against uh, the, the gods of Egypt. More on that some other time. But they created this image to worship. We're like, because remember, they weren't saying that, oh, we want a new God. They said, we want someone, to, we want a God that, we can, that will represent us, that will go before us. And then Aaron fashions this God and he says, behold, children of Israel, the, gods, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's, they weren't just coming up with a new God. They brought this image, which the people were familiar with. The problem is, once they brought the image that the people were familiar with, they began to enter into the rites and rituals of worshiping the apis bull. That's why it says, they ate, they drank, and they rose up to play. And by the way, when it says they rose up to play, it was not a game of Uno, all right? Uh, They were then beginning to compromise their convictions because that's what an idol always does, that you don't have to worship a statue. And this is one of the things like, oh, it's so primitive to worship a statue. Listen, uh, an idol is anything. An idol is anything that you make the ultimate thing in your life. Your career can become an idol. Hobbies can become an idol. Anything that takes place, takes the place of God in your life becomes an idol. Anything that, that where, from which you derive your primary identity becomes an idol. And the problem is always this, that idols demand everything and never deliver on their promise. Theologian Tim Keller writes it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Idolatry is desire out of control because the desire, the the idol is promising things it can never deliver on. And so we keep compromising and compromising to get it, but it never is able to deliver. The second thing, what he says in the following verses, he talks about sexual immorality, where he says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. And sexual immorality is desire that derails us from our relationship with God. And Paul is referencing a story, particularly in Numbers 25, but it starts in Numbers 22 through 25, and it talks about this prophet whose name was Balaam. And he gets hired by a king whose name is Balak. Balak hires Balaam and says, look, I want you to curse the people of Israel because they're blessed, but I think if you curse them, they're going to be cursed. And he says, yeah, no problem. So he goes to curse them, and every time he opens his mouth, he blesses the people of Israel. By the way, one of the reasons why the wise men at Christmas were looking for a star is because of a prophecy that Balaam gives in Numbers chapter 24. Search for that on your own time. We're going to keep moving. But here, the point is, is that it's, these prophecies that he gives are beautiful. And so Balak is upset, like, man, I'm paying you to do a job to curse these people. He's like, I can't curse them. They're blessed. And he says, but what you can do is seduce them to turn from God. And if you get them to turn from God, then God is required to judge them and separate this. And so that's the only way. So he tells them, look, what you can do is get some of the Moabite women, and they're involved in all these pagan uh, rituals, get them to seduce some of the men, and that will draw them away from God, their God, through these fertility rites. And that's exactly what happened. And then judgment came and all of that. And sometimes we think, oh, that would never happen. 
And I'm telling you that it happens all the time. I can't tell you how often I'm, I'm walking through Publix or Target and I see someone who used to attend Calvary and I'll say, hey man, how you doing? Oh, hey, Pastor Bob. I'm like, dude, what happened to you? I'm like, oh, you know, I got busy. And you know, but I'm watching online. Now let me tell you what happens. When, when someone says I'm watching online, let me interpret what my mind hears. What that means is at some point in time, I turned on the computer while I was making a bagel and I had you on in the background until you said something I didn't like, and then I just closed the laptop. And so anyway, so that's what I tend to hear. And so they'll, they'll say, you know, oh, I'm online. And I'm like, come on, man. Where you been? And then he'll say, no, no, man, I've been, I've been busy. And I say, and then I, if I'm sometimes feeling especially bold, I'll say, why don't you just tell me what her name is? And, and he'll be like, what? What do you mean? And I know, man, I'm busy. I'm like, no, you're getting busy. And, but why don't you tell me, this is why people don't like to talk to me in public, by the way, as I'm telling this story, I'm like, now I know why people run when they see me. And, uh, it's because I just, I sometimes feel especially bold, but my point is this is that once again, it's not that the desire is wrong, right? Attraction is wrong. It's when the desire is out of control because notice what happens. The desire gets out of control. The thing that God instituted for marriage gets taken outside of marriage and it begins to derail the person entirely from their relationship with God. Third thing that he says, and this is the last one, he says, nor let let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by by the destroyer. When he talks about testing God, this is a lack of gratitude. And this refers to two different stories out of the book of Numbers. The first is in Numbers 21, and the second is in Numbers 16. In Numbers 21, the people were complaining incessantly about the manna. Remember that manna that's like it just showed up on the ground and they could make anything out of it? They were like, we hate this manna. It's detestable to us. And it's like, dude, you were a slave in Egypt not that long ago. Like, now you're complaining about the menu? Really? And then the other, in, the, in the other story, in Numbers 21, the people were complaining again. They were complaining about their leaders because Moses was judging sin, and they didn't like that. It's like, dude, you're, you were a slave. They were whipping you to make more bricks and meet the quota. And it's like, but the problem was this. They just weren't thankful. They just weren't thankful. They were free. But all that they could see was what they didn't have. And I'm telling you, it, this, this happens to any of us when we just don't see what it is that we have. Let me ask, it's kind of a silly question, but let me ask, it'll, it'll make sense. How many of you have ever phone, flown first class on an airplane? All right, good number, very good. Um, I used to fly a lot more than I do now, uh, but every once in a while, because of points and whatever, I, I would be able to you know, upgrade one of my flights to first class. And the worst part of first class, there is a downside to first class. And it's not that they give you a real blanket and pillow, not the little paper thing that you get like you're at the dentist. Like they're giving us that on a plane. Like, oh, would you like a blanket? Like, what am I, this is like parchment. Like, am I writing a letter? Anyway. Um, so they give you warm cookies on real plates. And if you're nice, they'll give you more. Um, and, and, and it's not, and this is, if I'm being honest, this is my favorite part of sitting in first class is the look of people. You know what I'm talking about. Because when you go on an airplane and you're, you're going to coach, you're looking at the people in first class like, how in the world did you work this out, dude? Like, that's what you're looking at. And I'm, I love, and it's like, I'll just be like, what's up? What's going on? 
So I just, that's wrong. It's wrong. And, and, and I shouldn't do that. And yet I have done it many times. And so anyway, so, um, but there is, a, there is a downside. And that is sometimes when I, when I look at the people that are going back, I think, um, I know what's going to happen next time I fly. I'm going in the back with all the mutants. Like I know. And so one time I was, uh, I was speaking at an event in Chicago. And so I was flying, I flew from Miami uh, from Miami to Chicago, and so and I got upgraded for the first leg of it. And so I was sitting in the window seat, and then uh, someone was sitting in the aisle seat. The kid who sits down in the aisle seat is this kid. He's maybe nine, ten years old. For the next two hours, the kid sparsely took a breath to talk to me, and he was under the impression that he and I were friends. We probably leaned closer to enemies. Uh, by the end of this. But this kid spent two, now mind you, I'm on the plane. I got to finish writing what I'm going to say at this event and kind of review my notes. And so we're, we're, he's, and he's just talking to me. He spends two hours talking to me about Super Mario. <laughs> Listen, I have three kids and they all have a varying degree of understanding of Super Mario. And I've had conversations with all of them about Super Mario, but I've never talked to anyone for two hours and I'm thinking to myself, Luigi, relax, okay? <laughs> now, as I'm, I'm probably an hour into this because I'm just stunned at how much this kid, he's talking so much I can't even think. At some point, I think, doesn't this kid have parents? And shortly after that, the mom, who, by the way, is like two rows over, she kind of pops her head in. She's like, I'm sorry he talks a lot. And I said, I'm sorry too. And... Anyway, but you know the thing, you know what I was thinking the whole way to Chicago? I wish I was in coach. This stuff doesn't happen in coach. People just leave you alone. Everybody's upset, so they just keep to themselves, right? This whole first class thing, it brings out a joy that some people don't know how to handle. And so, and so I get on the plane in Chicago and uh, going home and I, because I, I'm going back to coach and now I'm the guy walking through and people are like, what's up? Anyway, I'm like, yeah. And so... Anyway, so I sit down. I see this couple sitting next to me. I'm on, I'm on the aisle seat, which is my preference. And so I'm sitting in the aisle seat. And, um, and first thing I say to them, uh, and I say, do you speak English? They said, no. I'm like, ¿Hablas español? No. And they say, portugués. And I'm like, praise the Lord. Sit down. <laughs> we, not, we didn't say one word to each other the whole time. Those are two of my favorite people in the world that, I fly with, that I've flown with. And so, but once again, my point is this. My point is this is that sometimes we think we will be grateful when we get the thing that we want. But that's not how gratitude works. You see, gratitude is something that is born in us. But if we haven't let, because we haven't let our desire for what we want get out of control. And instead of thinking that these ancient people are so primitive and they're just, you know, whatever, Paul says, no, 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 they're more like you than you realize. And we can learn from them and avoid a world of pain if we observe that the mistakes they made are the mistakes that are available to us if we don't make the decision to avoid them. All right, last two verses and then we're done. He says, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you are able 
to bear it. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing is that common struggles require personal resolve. Paul is making the case here and going back to this idea of the mature believer and the weak believer that he's saying this, if you are the mature believer, be careful. Unlike the, the, the weak believer who's like, he's like, hey, you just got to grow up. To the mature believer, he says, be careful because the temptations that they experience are the same temptation that's common to everyone, no matter what era we're living in. So be careful that you don't let your freedom take you down a path that will ultimately derail you because those who have gone before us serve as examples to us. There's a common phrase that Christians love to use that makes me literally crazy. They'll say this, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. I don't know that there is a statement more unbiblical than that one. Because I think an argument could be made that God constantly gives people more than they can handle so that they can depend and trust him completely so that they can see what happens in your life when you do trust him. Every story that we reference in the book of Exodus was God giving those people more than they could handle. But the point is this, is that, and I'm sure that if all of us, we did like an interview and every person came up, all of us would have stories of moments where we were given something more than we could handle at one time or another, but with God's help and strength, we were able to be victorious over it. Because, but see, the idea where people get that from is from this verse, verse 13, this erroneous idea. But see, it's not that God won't give you more than you you can handle. What the verse says is that no temptation is beyond what you're able to say no to. That every temptation that we experience is what's common to human beings. And that there has never been a moment where you said, no, the temptation was too much, I had to give in. No, there's always been a way out. Whether it was just saying no to it, whether it was walking away, whatever it was, it's nothing different than what other people have walked through. Now, as we close, I want to talk about something that I think is so powerful here, but I need to I need to walk you through it for a second, if if you'll indulge me. What Paul has been doing in chapter 10 has been talking about what theologically are called types. And that is that there's a story in the Old Testament, and he'll talk about a type. That is, it's a picture of something. And so sometimes the type is a picture of a New Testament principle, and sometimes it's a picture of Jesus. And that's what we see here. Because hidden in these Old Testament stories are a powerful point about spiritual maturity. Because sometimes the weak believer, they will just want to create a box that this is what's okay and everything else is not okay. And, and the, what Paul says, the mature believer does this. He evaluates everything based on, is this going to draw me close to God or take me away from him? You see, when he talks about they all ate the same spiritual food, when Jesus was teaching on this and the people said to him, our fathers ate bread from heaven, manna. He said to them, I am the bread of life, having come from heaven to satisfy every human person. In John chapter 7, when the people were celebrating a feast, commemorating the water that came from a rock, there's this moment where everything gets quiet because there was no need for water to come from a rock because they had entered the promised land. At that moment, when everyone was silent, Jesus stood up and started shouting, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will gush forth torrents of living water. When serpents attacked the children of Israel, as we referenced earlier um, in, in the passage, because of their incessant complaining, 
God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this bronze serpent. I want you to make a serpent. I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to lift it up. And that everyone, all they have to do is look at it. And if they'll just look at it, they'll be healed. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to the the religious leader, Nicodemus. And he says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, here's the point of all of this and why it matters. Is that we are not alone. In fact, we've never been alone. The children of Israel didn't see it, but they didn't realize that whole time. Jesus was walking with them. God was walking with them, and he's never going to leave them, never going to forsake them. He's never going to leave us or forsake us as well. And sometimes we can be like the children of Israel, surrounded by what God is doing and not even realizing it. And you know, if you will take a closer look, you will realize that you have never been alone as well, that God has been with you every step of the way. And the wiser we become, we have this ability through wisdom to see in all of our circumstances how God has been walking with us, even in the most difficult of times. But my friends, that's why we complain, because we think we're alone. It's the reason why we fear, because we think that we're alone. It's the reason why we give our best years to worthless things, is because we think we're alone and we've got to fend for ourselves. It's the reason why we lack gratitude, is because we think that we're alone, and if we're gonna hap- it's going to happen, we've got to make it happen. But listen, you've never been alone. He's been with you. And listen, he's with you in the wilderness and he's with you when things are good and he's with you when things are tough and he's with you in the darkest moments. And in fact, he's with you even when you want to be alone. He's with you. And my friends, that's what communion is all about. Bringing us back to this reality, centering our lives on Jesus and drawing closer to him. So if you're experiencing temptation, now is your moment to draw closer to him. And if you're struggling to see God and everything that's happening, this is your moment to draw close to him. And if you're stuck in your circumstance, this is your moment to draw close to him. And if you feel like you're alone, then communion is your reminder that you've never been alone. He's always been with you. So I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward now. And they're gonna hand you the communion elements and I'm gonna invite you to hang on to them. And we're gonna partake of communion together as Pastor George leads us. For the moments where I'm still in your presence And all the noise dies down Lord, speak to me now You have all my attention I will linger and listen I can't miss a thing Cause Lord, I know my heart wants more of you my heart wants something new so high Surrender all Cause all I want is to live within your love Be undone by who you are My desire is to Into the way I am dead.
1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you for a love that is so deep, for a grace that is unfailing, and for your presence because you're always with us and able and ready to help us in time of need. And Lord, I just pray that we would be a people who are learning the lessons and seeing you and how you're moving and how you're working. God, that's our hope. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.